0: amen good morning to you it's good to see everybody here and you know he could well be coming very soon and it wouldn't be well there's nothing else would be better than that to happen if he were to return there's nothing left on the prophetic calendar that has to happen before the Lord Jesus comes to snatch up his church it could be today that we look into our Savior's eyes, wouldn't that be something? in the meantime, even if I'm wrong about that, I believe I'm right to think that it could happen because the Bible says we purify ourselves with that hope of his coming. So we look forward to his imminent return. Ephesians chapter four, this morning, verse one. It says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Anytime you see the word therefore, what are we supposed to ask? What is it therefore, right? And it's especially important in this instance because the word therefore links all of what we saw in chapters one through three with all that we're gonna be seeing in chapters four through six. Chapters one through three, line upon line, precept upon precept of all of the things that God has done for us, all of the blessings that we have in Christ Jesus, the riches of his glory. So in light of all of the things that we've studied now and only now does he beseech or exhort us to walk worthy, chapters four through six, of this high calling. Now, why do I keep talking about this? Every single Sunday, since we've been in the book of Ephesians, I keep talking about the format of this book. Well, the repetition is necessary. And the reason the repetition is necessary is because the word therefore, therefore, has the power to change a Christian life. It changes Christian lives all the time. And in no uncertain terms, it changed my Christian life. It may be hard for some of you to believe this concerning what you know about me, but there are many areas of my life in which I am a perfectionist. And I'm very much not happy with pretty much anything that I do, ever. Now, that then is a recipe for someone who is new in their walk with God sometimes to destroy a person, especially someone like I was, who when I was young and new to my walk with God, I was trying so desperately to earn God's favor. So I had this whole structure, this system that I had implemented on my own. I'd picked up different bits of pieces from advice from different people down throughout the years. But there was things that I did and there were things that I absolutely did not do. Touch, don't touch. Look, don't look. Taste, don't taste. All of those kinds of things. I had these rules. I would pray for so long. I would go to church so often. I would always read six chapters of the Bible every single day, no more, no less. Four in the old, two in the new, every single day without fail. And if for some reason I forgot my Bible, like if I was on vacation or something, somehow I thought God would bring it to my memory, 11.30 at night, grab that Gideon Bible, pull that thing out of the hotel room there, and get that reading in before God curses me for not getting my six chapters in. That was the way that I thought about things. Now the mistake that I made, and the mistake that many Christians make, is in placing ourselves as the initiator in the relationship with God, and God is the responder. It's very important that you understand that that's what was happening. In other words, what we think we're doing is, I create this formula by which if I do all these things, if I read so many chapters, if I go to church so often, if I pray for so long, if I stay away from certain sin, then God is obliged to do all these things for me. But we've learned through our study of Ephesians so far, that that's backwards he is the initiator, we're the responder. He's the one who initiated a relationship with us, a love for us, a salvation for us, all of the blessings for us. And our job now is to respond in light of all that. So if you look at chapters one through three, in summation of that, I'll give you one verse from chapter two to help us to conclude this. He said that we are seated, right, in heavenly places. Now think about this with me okay think this through with me this morning before the lord tells us in chapter four how we're to walk he first tells us in chapter two in summation of chapters one through three how we are seated you don't tell a child to walk before they first learn how to sit up so before we can know how to walk we first must learn how we are seated in the heavenly places and we saw these things in chapters one through three we are chosen We're adopted, we're accepted, we've been redeemed and forgiven, we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit as an inheritance, a down payment on everlasting life. And he did it by grace, through faith, and that not of ourselves, it was a gift from God. So we can't boast about it, but the good thing about that, since it's a gift, and since it's not of works, is it's a a surety. It's not something you can lose. If you attain salvation by grace, then you keep salvation by grace. So that gives you going forward a calming sense that I'm seated in the heavenlies and that can't be taken away from me. He told us we were dead. And though we were dead, he made us alive in him. He became our peace. He also became our access to God, reconciling the whole body into one, Jew and Gentile together, this whole world that are believers as fellow members of the household of God. All of that is just a small snapshot of what we saw in the first three chapters. Now, after he lays all that out for us, does he now in chapter four begin to speak of a life that is to be lived in response to all that, a life that is consistent, a life that is worthy, a worthy walk in light of the wonderful calling that we have in him, And that word worthy there in verse one means to be of equal weight. It means to be in balance. Picture it like a scale is to be. And so we're to look at all that we've seen that God has done for us, how good he's been to us, how rich he's made us. And then of course we realize we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, right? So as Christians, the Holy Spirit living inside of us gives us a desire then to want to live a life that is consistent, that is in balance with all the things that he's done for us. But then God is so good, right? Because he doesn't just get to the end of chapter three and say, okay, now walk worthy of the calling by which you were called. Amen. And the end, he doesn't leave us to guess as to what that response, what a worthy response would look like. And that's a good thing because we'd roll up our sleeves and get to work the only way we know how, and every single person would be doing it their own way and differently. But instead, in chapters 4 through 6, he provides us detail here, and frankly, I'm kind of amazed at where he begins. Verse 2, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, and then are you ready? Verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So where does he begin? He desires that every single one of us as Christians would be an influence within the body of Christ for unity and peace. And this has to be commanded to us, right? Because although God sees us through the lens of the covering of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, as if we have not sinned, because we're in Christ, we know that the body of Christ is not perfect. It's not without wrinkle or spot. The old saying is true, right? If you find a perfect church, don't go there because you'll ruin it. It won't be a perfect church any longer as soon as you show up. How could it be a perfect church when it's comprised of people that are not perfect? And by the way, you can get a chip on your shoulder about that too like, "Oh, I know. No perfect churches. I've learned about that. I don't get my hopes up too high. No, what makes the church not perfect? It's not the church. It's you and I, when we meet up together in that church body, and because we're of the flesh, that's the way it is. And so there's this need then, for us to be exhorted unto unity. And we're not just talking about, by the way, unity within a local body such as this. We're talking about the larger body of Christ, every Christian church. I would categorize every gospel teaching church. Every church that considers itself under the lordship of Jesus Christ, they are our brothers and sisters. There's never just one church, say, in a county this size that's right for everyone. Everyone has little different strengths and weaknesses as a church. They certainly have different emphases in terms of how they want to function, what the vision is, what God would have them do to reach people in the area. And it's always okay. It's always a good thing. You could be here this morning and a few months from now, God may call you somewhere that is a better fit for you, specifically in your walk with God. And that's always an okay thing. There's a need for that. There's a need for diversity within the body of Christ. But because there's diversity, because we are so different, because our callings, our giftings, the vision he's given us, because he gives us those different things to reach people in different ways. But because we're so different, that's why there's this need for unity and peace. So God says in light of all the things that I've done for you, here's worthy response number one, he says, endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit. Now look back there again at verse two, and see the things that we can pull out that shows us what is required of us to produce that unity. And the first thing I see there is lowliness. You see that word lowliness? And lowliness just means humility. Can you imagine like um, a corporate or a government personnel manual, like an employee manual, where the chapter one of the employee manual was about unity in the workforce, and their number one suggestion was lowliness? I don't think so. So here at ExxonMobil, we place a high value on lowliness. You'll never see that in a sentence in a corporate personnel manual ever in the history of the world. But that's exactly what God says. Isn't that fascinating? He says, okay, here's all the wonderful things that I've done for you in Christ. Now, walk worthy, the first thing I am going to tell you about as it relates to walk worthy is walk in unity and the key, the number one key to that is lowliness. Humility. And it's so true. The second thing he points out there is gentleness. One pastor I was listening to said, to, as you approach people within the body of Christ, approach them as if they're wrapped up in that tape that we put around boxes when we're moving, fragile, handle with care, because people are fragile, and we have to, I'm fragile. You have to put breakable on the box that I'm in because we're sensitive and we want to approach people as such. And then he says long-suffering and bearing as well, which I think speaks to patience for sure. One of the reasons why patience is stressed so much within a church body as well is because, well, because we're Christians, we have this very high standard for each other We basically just expect general perfection from one another. Despite what we know to be true about our own hearts and our own ways, we still sort of expect something, sometimes I think maybe a little bit too high than what is realistic in light of what the Bible teaches about the human condition. It's been said that Christian discipleship is teaching the intolerant to tolerate the intolerable, and I agree, and that is the step one in the process of working within the body of Christ. So it's so important that we are always endeavoring, and that word endeavoring gives us a sense that it's an ongoing thing. Well, I endeavored for a little while, but I got tired of her. No, you have to kind of just keep endeavoring over time to keep the unity of spirit in the bond of peace. For, and look what he's given us here to keep us united, in verse four, there is one body. So there's a handbook of, Christian denominations in America. And all you need to know about that handbook is they're on their 13th edition. That tells you all you need to know about how many times they have to update the amount of denominations that there are in this country. It's estimated that there are 5,000 Protestant denominations in the world today, including the two seed in the Spirit, Predestinarian Baptists. That's my favorite title for a church body. And then the other one is the original Church of God Incorporated. I'm not making fun of them, but pretty sure it wasn't incorporated when it was the original Church of God. In the New Testament, they were just known as the way. They were just known as Christians. And there's really only one body. He says, and one spirit. All the same Holy Spirit. That's a capital S there. So it's speaking of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And you can never, ever forget that that when you run across a church, a group of people, someone here within the body of Christ, that they may have a little different theology that you do, possibly. And God is just as pleased, just as thrilled to have his Holy Spirit living inside of that Christian that he is to have his Holy Spirit living inside of you as well. He says, just as you were called in one hope, of your calling. So we have the same hope. One Lord, that's the Lord Jesus. One faith, we're all saved the same way. One baptism, same public identification. And one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Now, if you look back at verses four through six as being a clump of verses together, you see a common theme there, don't you? You see one, 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 seven times. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God. These are the things that God has given us to keep us united as a church body. It's astonishing what God has given us in common with every single Christian in the entire world. And yet, what can happen? Because we're a family, because we're together all the time, sometimes once a week, sometimes two or three times a week, And you know how a family operates. We can be walking in and out of the sanctuary and I don't see you or you don't see me. And what's up with that? How come we didn't get our hug in? And is he still upset with me over last week? And did I say something that offended him? And all of a sudden we've forgotten all that there is that God has done to unite us. And think about this for a second. If that word back there in verse one, worthy means equal weight, to keep in balance. Imagine that I had this gigantic chalkboard behind me here and I was gonna write a formula on that board. And so on one side of the formula, I would have one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God is less than or equal to fill in the blank, cut in line in the agape feast. It doesn't work. The things that sometimes serve to make us not so unified in a church body, are not on equal weight with the themes and the realities that God has given us that we can forever praise him for that are so much greater than the things that might divide us. Now, it's important that we point that out because this big theme here is unity, but he segues here a little bit to talk about diversity. Verse 7, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's Gift. So we're all called to unity, but that doesn't mean we're going to look and say the same thing. We're going to function very differently within the church body. When you were saved by God and the Holy Spirit came to live inside of you, every single one of us were given at least one supernatural gift or function of the Holy Spirit. Now stop for a second. And just think about the privilege that it is that God Almighty would give you a gift to use in service to your fellow Christian, right, in the local body or in the community or whatever the case may be. I just think it's a wonderful thing. Now, with that privilege, though, comes responsibility to administer that gift, to use that gift, to invest in that gift. Think about the parable of the talents. Very important for us. Now, we'll come back to this in a little bit, but to show you just how special this manifestation of the Holy Spirit, a gifting, which a gifting is a way in which I represent God in service unto him, he takes a step back here and tells us how this or when this giving happened. It's pretty neat here. Verse 80 says, therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts To men, so he's quoting here from Psalm 68, where the Messiah is pictured in this psalm as a conqueror, and from his victory and the wealth he attained, he gives gifts upon his ascension or return back to heaven. It says now, verse nine: This he ascended. What does it mean? But that he also first descended in the lower parts of the earth, who. Uh, he who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. So this is obviously now in verses 9 and 10, he is filling in for us this psalm and the fulfillment of it in the person of Jesus, right? Who in between the time of his crucifixion and his resurrection, we know he spent three days and three nights where? In the belly of the earth. This is in that day, of course, before Jesus rose, when uh Old Testament saint would die, when anyone would die. <laughs> they would go to Hades, and Hades was divided into two places. There was a bad place and there was a good place. And the good place was known as Abraham's bosom. Because until Jesus' blood was applied, no one could be in the Father's presence. So Abraham's bosom was paradise, but they were still at that point unable to be in heaven. Now today you die, absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. But in that day, Jesus went and he preached to them and led them out of Abraham's bosom. We don't have time to go into it in great detail. But what Paul is saying here that I think is fascinating when he talks about the ascension of Jesus Christ, and that's when gifts were given. Why were gifts given upon Christ's ascension? The reason why is because remember what Jesus said? He said that if he goes away, the helper would come, right? That only upon him ascending, would the Holy Spirit come and live inside of our hearts? He said it was better for us if that was the case. So the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us, and that's how we're given or assigned these gifts and these functions within a church body. It speaks to our responsibility. That Jesus would leave the scene so that, he said it would be better, because the Holy Spirit could be 24-7 with every single believer wherever they go, and could give you a supernatural function within the body of Christ to represent Christ and his church, and that speaks to the responsibility of that calling, that makes that gifting, that function that you have of the utmost importance. If Jesus left so the Holy Spirit would come so that we would have a gift to function within the church body, then it's important that I invest in that gift, that I develop that gift, that I ask God to help me with that gift, that I use that gift within the body of Christ. So he gave us gifts, but he also gave us leaders to help us develop those gifts. Verse 11, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. And the purpose for that is to instruct people so they can understand how to use their gifts. So just think about it for a minute. Let's say you're a new believer in Christ and you're sitting here this morning. You're like, what are you talking about? I have a gift, a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. What does that look like? And the Bible in several different places points out what that looks like to serve in the body of Christ and how God comes into your heart and changes you. And there's different ways in which we function. Some are given to helps and hospitality and some wisdom or healings or teaching, whatever the case may be, discernment all kinds of ways in which we function outlined in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, other places. And so he comes into our lives and he, and and he gives us this gift to function within the body of Christ. And he gives us leaders then here verse 11, these offices to help us cuz like you wonder where do I even begin as a believer? How do I even get started? And so God gives us leaders to help us in the development of those things because that is the purpose of these offices it says verse 12 for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry for the edifying of the body of christ i was growing up in the church i grew up in and this is no knock on the church that i grew up in i got saved there i learned about god there it was just my impression i was a young person didn't know much about the church but my impression of a church and i think a lot of people's impression of a church is that the work of the ministry, as verse 12 says, is basically done by the pastors. That you get some pastors in place and those pastors do the quote work of the ministry. But that there's not nearly enough pastors in the world and that was never God's intention to do work, the work of the ministry through the pastors. Be Kind of like if we were playing a a football game. And you can imagine a football stadium. You have 50,000 fans around the outside of the stadium. And they're on the sideline getting ready for the kickoff. And the coach is riling up the players. And then just before there's kickoff, the coach runs out on the field by himself to return the kickoff. And the kickoff comes and the coach gets the ball. And then 12 people from the other team just smash the coach. Because the coach is not the star player. He's not even really one of the players. He doesn't own the team. He doesn't even assemble the team. He just kind of Um, coaches. It's pretty much all that the coach does. And so sometimes we can create too much responsibility for those pastors. The pastor's focus there is equipping the saints for the work of the ministry to help you grow in your understanding and your relationship with God so that you take your place of service within the body of Christ. You know, a lot of people think that so-called lay people pay Ministers to do the work of the ministry. But really, the truth is that ministers equip so called lay people to be ministers. That's the reality. Training, say, a Christian contractor how to share their faith on the job site, or a Christian student how to have a relevant testimony in the classroom or a Christian mom, how to make an impact in her neighborhood for Christ. And that's why, and let me finish before you throw something at me, the principal role of the church is not evangelism. It's not evangelism. It is one of the functions, and Paul told Timothy, do the work of the evangelist. But it's not the principal role, because I could stand up here And I could do an altar call every Sunday for a couple hundred people. Or I can attempt to equip a couple hundred people to be out in the community doing altar calls all week long. And we're much more efficient that way. And so since that is the mission of the Lord's church, since the church's role is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, then I have to say, I don't know that we're doing that good of a job in this country in 2015 of equipping the saints. And that's not all the, quote, church's fault. It's some of the people's fault too, because the people don't want that anymore. And then the church adjusts to that to give them what they want. They don't want to be challenged anymore. They don't really want to be equipped. They don't really want to do the work They don't wanna be told where they have to improve. They don't wanna be exhorted anymore. Now this is sad, but it's to be expected. Apostle Paul said, for the time will come that they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and will turn their eyes away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. It's a fulfillment of prophecy, but it's heartbreaking nevertheless. And we see it today that essentially a good portion, I don't wanna be all negative and doom and gloom, but a good portion of the church in America, contemporary Christian church in America today is basically like a part of a human potential movement now. Ministering to what people perceive that they want or need or wanna hear under the guise of Christianity instead of enduring sound doctrine. Instead of saying, I wanna go to church and I need to be in church and I don't expect them to entertain me and I don't expect to be amused and I know I need to be challenged and I don't expect them to make it easy on me. I don't wanna go to church and be easy. Am I comfortable in church? I don't know if I wanna be comfortable in church all the time. I need to be challenged a little bit in my walk with God. Minds you, Revelation, when Jesus writes the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, And if you look at those churches as like chronological chapters or phases of the larger body of Christ over time, you get to the very last church, the seventh church there, is the church of Laodicea. And Jesus called that church lukewarm. And the word Laodicea means the people rule. And when I'm talking about the people, I'm talking about any person. So you and me. When the people rule and not God, then that is a recipe for lukewarmness because we will never expect and demand of ourselves what God will expect and demand of us. We'll never even come close to that. We will always set the bar a little bit lower than God's standard for us. It's like a good coach growing up and you played any kind of sports and you had a really good coach. That coach in some ways was an irritant to you because they saw something in you that was better than what you saw in yourself. And so they always challenged you to go a little bit harder, a little bit higher, a little bit stronger, a little bit tougher. And they were on you a little bit. It wasn't always fun, but they did that because they saw something better in you. And the Lord does the same thing with you and me. He knows more so what is possible because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us for us to do and represent him in this world a presbyterian preacher of the 20th century peter marshall said this he said of christians he said they're like deep sea divers encased in suits designed for many fathoms deep marching bravely forth to pull plugs out of bathtubs and that was the contrast between what we have been given in terms of our gifting and calling of the holy spirit what's capable In terms of what God can do through us as Christians versus sometimes how we can sell ourselves short in those things God has so much more for us he wants us equipped to do the work of the ministry till verse 13 we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and then what does that point to to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ we want to be like Jesus That is what the equipping points us to. Hopefully, Christ-likeness. That over time, we would become more and more like him. The word perfect there certainly can describe Jesus, of course. But it also means to be mature. And that's the goal, both as individuals and as a church body, that we would become more and more like him. Now, in contrast to that, that we would grow in maturity, being perfected over time. Now you see instability here, verse 14, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Let me take two things there real quick. He talked about the unity of the faith there, which is doctrine, the faith, that we're taught, we're unified around what we know is true about our salvation. And he combines that with the knowledge of the Son of God. So the knowledge of the Son of God is our relationship with Jesus Christ. So we take our doctrine, we take our relationship with God, and we combine those things, we harness those things, we work on those things, and that is a recipe for stability and unity within a church body. But unfortunately, because we know that we're not as good as we can be as a church body, the greater church body at equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. Instead, he says, we're often tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. And the imagery there, think of it like a small boat out at sea and there's a storm. And that boat is just kind of tossed, right? You can only imagine. Maybe you've been out on a boat like that. It can feel like you're being tossed to and fro. And the idea here is that someone who is not rooted or anchored, we should say, in God's word as the basis for my Christian living, as the basis for my worthy response for all that he's done, as the basis for how the church body functions is gonna be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And this is why all throughout the time in which you're coming to church, you'll see people come and go all the time. Now, people come and go all the time for good reasons too. Sometimes they move, sometimes their schedule changes, sometimes they do need a different fit at a church body, but oftentimes they get tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. I don't know in the, let's see now, 17, 18 years that I've been walking with the Lord, I can't tell you the amount of times that I've seen someone come in one day that had been walking with God and they come in, they're like, oh, you got it. You got to check this out. You got to check out this new DVD series. It's revolutionized my life. And all of a sudden now, instead of coming to Bible study and fellowshipping with their brother and sister in Christ and reading their Bibles, they're hung up on a pet doctrine of sorts that dominates everything that they do. And they're watching Christian TV, and they're going off to these conferences. Before you know it, you never see them again. Because there's a wind of doctrine that comes along and it moves people around. We need to be anchored in the Bible, in what God's Word says. A lot of times people will say this, and I'm almost defiant to it, and forgive me in advance, I'm not trying to be stubborn up here. I'm definitely not trying to be arrogant, because in no way on the subject am I. It humbles me to think about the privilege we have of going through God's Word. But whenever somebody says something like, I think we ought to focus more on X or Y or Z, in Bible teaching? My answer to that question is, this is why we teach verse by verse. The reason we teach verse by verse is because not only do we know we'll cover the whole Bible doing it this way, but we also know and believe that we'll cover exactly the right proportion of topics and subjects in God's word that he's outlined for us. And the same thing is true if you read your Bible. If you just read your Bible cover to cover, And every day you're in your Bible and you go through the whole thing, you'll get just the right amount of portion. You'll get just the right meal to be feeding on on a daily basis. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't supplement. Forgive me if you think that I'm saying shouldn't supplement with Christian books or DVD series. I'm not saying that. I'm saying if you read your Bible every day, then you don't have to worry about ever being tossed by every wind of doctrine that comes along for a phase in the history of the church. And we need to, over time, We will pull out certain subjects and things like that, but we'll keep going through God's word systematically so that we know what it tells us. And this is the point, verse 15, but speaking the truth in love. And by the way, the the truth in love is a good principle here. Uh, We have to apply that whenever we're talking to someone about anything along the lines of, of the Bible, the Word of God, you're correcting someone or you're teaching someone or you're explaining to someone who doesn't know, always the truth in love. You can't just love people and you can't just give them the truth. You gotta do both. If you just give them the truth, then it's gonna come across cold and callous. If you just love them, you can love someone right into hell if you never give them the truth. And so the truth in love is so needed. Speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things, into him who is the head Christ from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love so as we function and as we take this first Step And God says, here's the first thing I want you to do. I want you to be unified, and I want peace within the body of Christ. It's still very important that we all do our part. In fact, I would argue that if we don't all do our part, it will be difficult for us to have unity within the body of Christ. Notice he says there again, every part, the end of verse 16, every part does its share. And there is no such thing, I don't believe, You can be maturing unto Christ-likeness if you're not serving God because Christ-likeness will look like service. Now, I'm not saying that it has to take place in a local church body. Most of Christian service takes place outside of a local church body. But there should be Christian service that is a part of your life, serving the Lord Jesus. Every part doing its share if we're going to have a healthy body. Now, let me close here as we combine these two concepts. I'll give it a shot. So, we're very different. We're going to function differently. Because we function differently, we see things differently. You're wired with a sp- particular gifting, so you see certain needs and I see different certain needs. It's always going to be the case. And so, it's very important then that we extend grace to each other so that God can produce a unity within the church body. Because, and here's the big thing that I want us to leave with this morning. God says, I did all these things for you, chapters 1 through 3. I love you so much. I've provided a future for you. I've given you the Holy Spirit. He is sealed. You know you have an inheritance of heaven. It's going to be perfect. I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am there you may be also. And he gives us peace and access. He's adopted us. He's accepted us. He's chosen us. All of these things. And then he says, okay, therefore, here's the first thing I want you to understand. I want you to be unified as a church body. That's the very first thing. Surprising, right? I mean, you would think it'd be a little bit surprising. You would think there'd be all these commandments or deny yourself this or make sure you do all these things, but he says, no. We need to be unified as a church body. Now, just let that settle for a second. Just slow down for a second and just let that settle in your heart this morning. Just think about the fact that God Almighty has done all of these things. He's taken the Alps of Scripture and he has outline for you all these ways in which you have been blessed in Christ Jesus, and then he says, all right, here's homework assignment number one. I want you all to be unified. Just let that search you. Just let that search your heart a little bit and ask God, is that me? Is that my attitude and my contribution within the body of Christ? Lord, am I an instrument dedicated to producing unity within the church? Is that what's on my heart and mind right now? Is what's on my heart and mind right now in terms of my calling is that I would carry out that calling in the body of Christ in such a way that it would enhance unity within the body of Christ? Because if not, then we got to go back to step one. We've got to get step one right before we move on to step two. Because God wants us unified. He wants us unified in the Spirit. And it's very important that we take Him seriously. He says, I've done all these things for you. Now you endeavor to walk in unity and peace as a church body. Let's just let that search us as we worship and as we fellowship. Let's keep that in mind as we fellowship. If you come back for the luncheon today. Let's think about what that looks like. How can I contribute to that this afternoon? Father, thank you for the way in which you've begun this morning. And it's a powerful exhortation, Lord. And probably if we all took a vote as to what you would begin with, not having read ahead, Lord, we might have come up with all kinds of answers rather than unity within the body. Yet I, I just know, God, that you want us to represent you, and how can we represent you if we're at each other, gossiping and backbiting and devouring? Oh, Lord, forgive us this morning. Forgive us for the time, forgive me, God, for the times in which I've been an instrument of divisiveness instead of unity. Times in which I've gossiped. Times in which I have taken my gift and used it for my purposes instead of yours. Not in keeping with the high, high calling that you've given me. All of the ways in which you've blessed me. Ways in which you've taken care of everything for me in spite of me before I even came into a relationship with you thank you Lord for your grace for us this morning And no matter what we've been up until now you desire to change us use us Lord to make us a tool and influence for a unity and a peace a peace that when people come here God that they would see Christ in us somehow that they would see Christ in our worship that they would see Christ in our fellowship The way that we welcome them and love on them and everything that we do. Lord, we're here principally above and beyond, even to equip the saints. We're here to bring glory to you. Lord, help us to do that today and all the days that we're together. And we ask it in Jesus' name.